I very much appreciate the opportunity to speak this evening. Um, this is such a wonderful group, and this topic is so near and dear to me. I'm very happy to have some things to share. So, um, the body. Leanne uh, said that we were working on this series, and I, I think that may, may be relevant for the, the subject tonight. Uh, I've always been drawn to body practice. It was actually what got me into meditation, uh, and it's, it's never gotten old over time. It just seems to go deeper and deeper. The teacher, uh, Jack Cornfield, when he was first teaching retreats, said that people used to say to him that they were coming on the retreat in order to have some kind of an out-of-body experience. And he always said, no, actually, you're going to have an in-body experience. Um, We have an embodied practice in this tradition. We understand that we're not trying to escape from the physical reality that we live in or try to achieve something mentally that ignores our body. Uh, Another teacher named John Travis, when he was a beginning student in India, um, his teacher noticed that he was trying to do this, trying to have a very heady experience. And the teacher actually um, poked John in the chest and said, you must go through this. You can't escape from it. So we're, we're here to go through our body, not to, not to escape from it through our spiritual journey. But what is the body? Do we really know that for sure? I mean, what is a, a hand or a spine, really? And think about the sense of your body. It changes so much. How different you feel when you're hungry, or cold, or sick, or tired, or sleeping, or meditating, or hanging upside down. These are all very different experiences, right? The body feels completely different. If we had to stay in any one experience forever, that would be completely strange. It's almost like we have a different body from moment to moment. Certainly we have a different body now than we did when we were 10 years old, where did that other one go? What is this thing we carry around? There is one certainty about the body, and that's that it dies. We know that's going to happen. And we're very clear on it also in the sense that uh, a corpse looks completely different from a person who is sleeping or unconscious. We know immediately. What is that about? What can we see just in this body that's so clearly life or not life? And to be really personal, let's remember that we all have that wonder about what's it going to be like when this one dies. It's going to happen to all of us. So in Buddhism, the body is the first foundation of mindfulness. Uh, The Buddha defined a number of skillful things to be mindful of. And the body is, is the first one. Don't be fooled by the word first. It's, um, it's not like you have to start there and do all the others. Any of the foundations is completely fundamental and can uh, take a person all the way to liberation. But the body's the one that's the easiest to see. 
I think that's why it's the first. And the body is also the vehicle for what are called the heavenly messengers. Um, aging, illness, death. And the fourth one, practice. Um, all of these occur through the body. So the body is really the gateway to encountering the Four Noble Truths. It's really important. (laughs) Don't spend your days ignoring your body. Um, It's really worthwhile to, to be mindful of it. So in the same way that movies and video games have ratings, this talk has a rating. Um, it's rated HM for Heavenly Messenger. So the Buddha offers um, numerous body practices in the suttas. And in our modern world, we have even more choices, um, things that have evolved since then. So I'd like to just mention a few different ways that the body can be explored. I'll mostly mention ones that I'm familiar with. I know there are many. In sort of the informal moment-to-moment practice that we do, it's really valuable to pay attention to the body, the um, position of the body, whether or not there's tension in the muscles, you know, what sorts of feelings of energy there are flowing through the body. These can be clues as to what emotion we're having, um, as to whether or not we're getting tense. If we start losing the body, the mind can float away and start doing other things. That's one thing that's important for me. I, I find it so useful to stay grounded because my mind has a tendency to kind of float away on thoughts and be speculative and whatever. And if I'm here breathing and I remember, oh yeah, you know, pay attention to this, it's much more likely that I'll be present and be able to respond skillfully to what's actually happening. Walking meditation, when you're walking somewhere, just pay attention. The body's always available, and it's always in the present moment. There are also um, activities like yoga, qigong, tai chi, those sorts of things that help us train ourselves to be more present in the body and to be more skillful with the way the body moves and the way we move energy through the body. These things are all very valuable. The Buddha recommends graveyard sitting for those who are interested. I tried this once for a few months and found it to be quite interesting. What is graveyard sitting? You um, do your meditation in a graveyard. So um, in the suttas, it's described as going to a charnel ground where there are actual decaying bodies, but those are hard to find here. Um, So you can just go to a graveyard. Um, When I did it, for example, I walked around and I read the gravestones and I paid attention to, I noticed what I noticed about that. First thing I did was calculate how old the person was then checked how old I was. <laughs> right, exactly, if you're older. And sometimes, every once in a while, there'd be one that only lived a few months or a few years, you know. And then insights come like, wow, you know, this was a whole person, they had a whole life, they had a favorite food, and I don't know any of it. It's all essentially nothing to me. It's something on a gravestone. 
and you know that's me too. So there's a lot that can come from that. And I also did sitting meditation there to see if I could kind of sense the energy of the place. That, yeah, it is interesting. Um, the Buddha also defines 32 parts of the body that can be noticed. I mean, of course, we have more than 32 or sometimes less than 32, depending how you count them. But um, he defines 32 in particular. And there's a traditional way to do this practice. I won't talk about that. I think um, next week we're going to hear some of that from Janet. I did the 32 parts in a non-traditional way, though. One time I... Um, I'm concentrated on one part per day for 32 days, um, just to go through and see what I could learn about the different parts of the body through that. I, I recommend that. That was a fabulous practice. That would be a different talk, though. Um, I'm also in a period now of studying the time around death. I volunteer as a hospice worker, and I see people who are in their bodies close to death. And um, that's kind of interesting. Of course, there's all the support work that that we do in that, and but part of it for me is also a spiritual practice to observe what does a body look like when it's close to death and how does a mind relate to that. And one of my most intense body practices is actually the subject of the rest of this talk. Um, last year, I participated in a six-day hands-on human dissection workshop. And... I'm going to be focusing on it today as a spiritual practice. You know, what does it bring up in terms of you know, what, what, what insights can we learn from this? So it doesn't have a lot of gore. Don't worry about that. Uh, but I, I did tell you that this talk had a rating. <laughs> Has anybody here ever dissected a cadaver? Ah, look at that. We've got about four hands, five hands in addition to mine. So... We're just here in this room of 30, 40 people. Hey, you never know what the people you've been talking to have done. <laughs> so the workshop that I did, now I'm not, a, I'm not a medical practitioner of any type, so this wasn't part of um, medical school. It was, I was totally amazed, actually, that uh, just a regular Jane like me could uh, do that. But you can. You can. I found a way. This is a workshop that was offered mainly for body workers. So most of the people there were massage therapists, chiropractors, structural integrationists, things like that. Um, usually in a medical dissection, you'll do what's called regional anatomy, where um, one part of the body will be dissected. You'll learn about the lower limb or the thoracic cavity or something like that, and you'll just do that part of the brain. Um, what we did was something called integral anatomy, and this involved uh, dissecting the entire cadaver in layers. So we would take off one layer of the whole body, so the skin, and then the fat, and then the next, and down until there was, you know, till finally they, all we had to, left to do was open it up and see the viscera. So it was very interesting to see the body as a complete system like that. It was much more holistic. It wasn't the sense that you're doing this little piece that's isolated. And so uh, it honored, in a way, the whole of the, of the body and the person. And the course was um, somewhat spiritual. Here's a, here's a quote from the um, description of the course. It says, By unwrapping the layers of the donor's gift, 
participants uncover hidden layers of themselves. That, that drew me in, actually. That got me to sign up for the workshop. I really enjoyed that. Um, the instructor was a Catholic theologian turned rolfer. So uh, he himself was a body practitioner. And I ended up treating it as a retreat, um, which turned out to be an appropriate analogy. I'm just glancing over and seeing Renata over here, actually, and I remember that she did this same course. So <laughs> she can, um, I don't know, compare her experience, perhaps. Um, so I treated it as a retreat. I sat in the evenings. I th- you know, sort of reflected on what was happening. But uh, I found that even after the course, I really needed to have some processing and integration of what I'd seen because it was kind of out of context for me. I'd never done anything like that. So I actually um, wrote, did some writing to help with that. And I ended up um, publishing an essay that I wrote about it in this book um, called Passing It On, which has just recently um, come out. It's got Dharma reflections from other practitioners. And don't worry, they're not all as weird as mine. Some people wrote poetry and some people wrote about insights they had while watching television and stuff like that. Um, but I'm just gonna I'm gonna read a little bit of what I wrote because I thought what I because I thought it was fine the way it was. This book, by the way, is available um, for free as a download on IMC's website. Or if you want to order this nice copy with the illuminated manuscript on the front, you can get it from Amazon. Um, okay. So I have it arranged by day. Day one, arriving. 30 people came together to share a task quite different from daily life. We began by standing in a circle and appreciating the gifts of the donors, silently beholding the four forms that would teach us that week. We set up an offering table on which we could place objects of inspiration throughout the course. Rather than opening to the enormity of the whole undertaking, I focused my efforts simply on being there, fully arriving. I attended carefully to the initial instructions on how to use a scalpel. Addressing the skin layer first, we removed the mask shown to the outer world. Day two, the slog. Here we encountered encountered the oft-avoided adipose or fat layer, and we had no choice but to go through it. Our experienced guide helped us understand that due to superficial societal mores, the adipose is misperceived. It is a whole organ unto itself, rarely appreciated or fully open to. The emotional current in the room ran high, bringing feelings of repulsion, overstimulation, pain, compassion, and the associated story-making. I found myself wondering if I could really undertake the tasks of the whole week. Later, at home... I took a long hot shower and had an unsettled sitting. The next day, one woman reported crying in her hotel room for no discernible reason, while another spoke hotly of her complaints about the workshop. Many flowers appeared on the offering table. Day three, energy. The deep fascia and muscle layers brought surprising buoyancy. Spontaneous peals of laughter erupted across the room at one point and our forms took on a sporty, well-toned look. At last, there was a feeling of settling into our unusual activity. On a lark, I picked up a partially opened pine cone for the offering table and saw that others had added candles and and feathers. 
And yet, I had an intuitive sense that this happy reprieve was temporary, serving mostly to gird us for the deeper work to come. We received instruction on using hemostats and tweezers to probe the tissues more delicately. It was becoming clear that the layers of the body, while clearly distinct, were nonetheless created by the tools. Nothing in the body is truly separate. The tissues literally interpenetrate and are everywhere infused with nerves and vessels. In sitting that evening, my mind was a little too quiet, as if concealing part of itself. Days four and five, deep spelunking. (laughs) Here we penetrated to the heart of the body, revealing the organs that sustain life and cause death. Each form had its oddities, of which the person was likely unaware. For example, a large intestine, barely wider than the small intestine, and an extra muscle unaccounted unaccounted for in medical textbooks. We also witnessed the features accumulated through life experience, artificial heart valves, a stent in the abdominal aorta, and a pill cam that had not completed its tortuous trek through the gut. (laughs) Although the excitement of discovery evoked fountains of energy in me, I also connected with a stillness deep in my being, punctuated by awe. I was unprepared for the emotional impact of holding a human heart, which in turn holds the universe. For the offering table, I drew a mandala using colored pencils, my intention at each moment simply to pick up the next color that felt right and draw the next shape that occurred. It came out swirly and interconnected, pink, coral, ochre, and fuchsia, with a streak of leaf green. These are the colors of the body. The warm tones persist even in the chill of death. In my sitting that evening, I sat like the ocean, immovable and ever-flowing. Day six, emptiness and letting go. On the last day, we sought the innermost spaces, penetrating the brain, spinal cord, and bone marrow. My own nerves tingled eerily as the cord was slipped out of the fortress of the spinal column so that it dangled freely from the primitive hindbrain like a ponytail. We were at the core, but it was impossible to ignore the fact that we did not find the person and no part was more important than another. There's nothing in the body but relationships. Untangle these and the form is empty. Finally, with simple and profound gratitude, we let the forms go. After holding hands in a hushed circle, We packed them in plain brown boxes to ship to the crematory and back to their families. Upon hearing that we were allowed to add objects from the offering table, I gently placed the mandala over the tender heart that had inspired it. Warm seawater spilled from my eyes. Our group's 30 lives went on, but surely each had a shift in its course. The outside looks different after seeing the inside although the resemblance between the two also increases. So those were kind of my impressions day to day. And I'd like to offer a few reflections. Um, There was kind of a reintegration after this, like after a retreat, and it went on for many months, maybe it's still going on, I don't know, but I'll I'll just 
to say a few things about what's on my mind now. One thing to notice from my reflective writing is that the workshop was primarily a journey for the mind. Um, There was a flow of emotions from day to day, not unlike on a retreat. Um, There were rushes of resistance, longing, sadness, fear, anger, joy. I was utterly exhausted at the end of each day, um, and yet strangely energized and focused also. I would say that dissection is a concentration exercise which leads to somewhat altered state of consciousness, at least when you dissect in that way. So the, the deeper we go into the body, the deeper we go into the mind. Getting elbow deep into a cadaver began to touch some very deep places in my psyche. And the outer experience began to merge with the inner experience in ways that are a little bit hard to describe. But one thing I alluded to that I would like to mention again from the writing is the simultaneous act of creation and destruction that I saw going on. Body parts are clearly different, Um, you know, Fingernails are not the same as bones, and the heart is not the same as the lungs. They're distinct, for sure, um, but they're not separate. Um, the body's not like a box, a toy box, that you open up and the pieces are little pieces that you can take out separately. Everything is completely solid from one side to the other. There's very few spaces, and everything's stuck together. It's all attached. So... There's a sort of a continual flow of differentiation from one type of tissue to the other, and, and it's very hard to, in, in most cases, it's a little bit hard to define a clear edge where you can cut between them. And a lot of the times what you're doing is you're creating something. You, know, you say, I want to see the heart, but where exactly is the edge of the heart? So you have to cut around it, and it's a little messy, and it's not clear what, what starts and what ends. So in some ways, what we're doing is creating things with the cutting tools. We're going to define this by where we put the scalpel and the idea and the intention. I know there's an organ here called the heart, so I'm going to cut around it and make it look like that. You kind of end up doing that. At the same time, um, you're destroying things because in order, if you want to see, for example, the nerves of the leg, you say, okay, I'm going to isolate the sciatic nerve. Um, To do that, you have to destroy some things. You have to destroy some vessels. You have to destroy some muscles to get it out. So there's no view of the body that's totally complete. Every view is partial. They're all instructive. But you have to sacrifice some parts to see other parts. It's not unlike any experience that we observe. You choose to focus on some part of it, which means you're ignoring some other part. And I noticed how often my mind didn't want to do this. I wanted to retain the whole thing. So if I wanted to, it was really hard to cut into things and, and be like, okay, I'm going to see this part, so I have to you know, hack that away. Um, and I, I didn't want to do that. There was this strange resistance to, to that. I think the most, one of the most powerful insights that I had was an experience of anatta, which is um, not-self. So it's the sense that um, the body, it was a direct experience of the body not being a self. And it's hard to describe. Um, There's sort of a a sense of alienness. I mean, we are looking at this 
cadaver, which is so obviously in the shape of a human, but not. It's dead, it's been embalmed, it's definitely not a person. We don't cut people. <laughs> it's not a person on the table in front of you. Um, and so, and yet it's so clearly recognizable. I just had this, um, this powerful sense that the body is a, a collection of non-living elements that are somehow coalesced out of their surroundings. The food that we eat, the air, like a seashell out of seawater. It just is created by a impersonal process, deeply organized process, but very impersonal, not by a creator. That was a, a visceral sense. Anatta um, is a purely a not experience. Anatta is not. It's not like you get a sense of what the self is and it's not the body. You just say not, not, not this, not this. Body is not the self. But this brings the mind to a certain edge that we're not often at. Um, Anatta is deeply challenging for the ego. And my mind really writhed a lot, writhed about a lot on this edge. It was hard to hold this truth, to really get it. Um, When you're working with a cadaver, it's very hard to have the belief or the view that the body is the self. So that kind of goes into the background. But there are all kinds of other views that then come to the foreground in order not to have the full experience of not-self. So all sorts of eternalist views are completely possible. You can imagine the body as the vessel for a soul, for an eternal soul. You can imagine um, some kind of a an all, the all the, that we can, you know, some sort of a non-bodily place that we're going to go after we die and um, merge with this oneness. So all of these thoughts, which I actually don't have very often, I had really often during this um, workshop, and I noticed that probably because part of this, part of you know what the self is, was taken away. Can't believe it's the body right now, which is what we usually do, by the way, a little bit unconsciously. But if that's gone, and to grab onto something else, I started grabbing onto all these eternalist things, and it was really interesting to watch my mind doing this. Um, to, to play around that edge a little bit. Now it's a memory, it's a concept, so I'm relating it to you in that way. I'm not there right now. But um, I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to hang out at this edge a little bit and really challenge those views, because in our day-to-day world, we don't get very close to that edge most of the time. So it bears repeating The deeper we go into the body, the deeper we go into the mind. That's the real work in meditation, after all, is understanding the mind and how it works, how it creates experience. This is how the first foundation of mindfulness ends up pulling in all the other ones. This is why they're all fundamental. Because if you deeply encounter the body, you will start encountering other things like mental states, views, feelings, Everything else gets pulled in. Some of our deepest issues with self-construction start getting pulled in. So confronting the body forces confrontation with these elements of the mind.
I have great respect for the body, actually. It's indeed a vehicle. It's several vehicles, actually. It's a vehicle for skillful action. And it's a vehicle for insight, for liberation. This collection of elements that we have presents the mind with a profound opportunity to free itself. Please don't waste it, this time that we have in this body. As a little side note, um, more and more, I appreciate the great effort that it takes to put the mind into the position where it can really challenge its fundamental beliefs that we normally sleep our way through every day. Um, Going to a workshop like this took a lot of effort. It's not easy to set something like that up. It's surprising conditions to be created. Going to a meditation retreat, it's the same kind of thing. It's an opportunity to really see things that you're not going to see in daily life. And even in a small way, coming here tonight took a little bit of effort. You came here to have a different experience than what you can get watching TV or hanging out at home or whatever. Um, and I'd, you know, I'd like to honor that. Thank you for doing that and for, for pushing that edge just even a little bit. And I encourage you to push it as much as possible. It's worth making the effort to create unusual or even radical conditions so the mind can get an unmediated encounter with reality. It's so precious. So coming back to a little bit more mundane perspective, I would say that another effect over time is just a feeling of greater freedom in this body. My breathing is a little freer. My Tai Chi is a little better. Just, uh, I I get the body at a more intuitive level than I did before. So that leads to greater equanimity and actually greater joy. Greater joy to have seen a cadaver. So, I think I'd like to stop there and offer a little bit of time for questions or comments um, before, just before that, I want to share also one thing that I brought. Um, might be of interest. I brought this book. This is um, an anatomy book. And one, it's a different kind of anatomy book than usual. A lot of them have gorgeous pictures by medical artists. This particular one has some pictures like that. And it also has photographs of dissected cadavers. So if you're interested, if you find this interesting, you may want to take a look at this book. I'll have it up here. And I encourage you maybe to treat it as a practice. You know, see for yourself, what feeling do I have? Ooh, I might get to look at a picture of a cadaver. What's that going to be like? Um, Notice what happens when you look, if you choose to do that. So don't worry, there's nothing on the front. I'll just put it right here. So people are welcome to come and see that later. Thank you. I have a question. Yes. Um, what went on for you as you were participating in the dissection itself with regard to where is the mind? 
Well, the natural assumption is that the mind is in the brain. Um, as a you know, as a Westerner, that was I think something that I came in with. And during the dissection, that view was not really held up very well. Um, one comment I made in my writing was that no part is more important than another. And that, I think, was an insight for me in seeing the body, is that um, every part is completely essential to the whole. I mean, maybe not in the sense that you can lose a finger or whatever and you're still alive, but there's a wholeness to the body. This was part of my resistance to wanting to take parts away. Um, And this emphasis on the integral anatomy way of seeing the body I think led me to appreciate that holistic view. I don't. I can't say that I explicitly contemplated where is the mind as I looked at the cadaver, but the sense of wholeness was very powerful for me. Um, I think that's the best answer I can give. D- did it help, or did you want to click to further ask? Um, it helped that. Um, and um, what, having a scientific background as you do and your experience in this workshop, um, what can you say about the life force energy that is now gone from the body? I, I'm not sure what that question is, but there's such a distinct difference between a body that is alive and animated and has the life force energy and one that does not. Yeah, there it is. We know immediately when we see one. Um, it's hard to say because cadavers look really dead. Um, they've, you know, they've been embalmed. I've seen one. Seen one. Um, I didn't, we didn't do dissection. Mm-hmm. Did you want to comment, James? Yeah, I was just wondering in your hospice practice, have you ever seen anybody go through the transition to being alive? I have not had that privilege yet. I think maybe that might provide some insight. I think it would too, yeah, seeing that transition. So it's, I've only seen alive or dead. <laughs> not, uh, not both. Renata, did you have a comment? I just wanted to say, um, one is, in my garden, I often see little animals. Like this weekend, I saw a bee. And I was really quite sure the bee was dead. And then I touched it, and it moved. Or hmm. I still remember a long time ago, we went to Hafun Bay, and there was this dead elephant seal. And James kicked it. And it wasn't dead. <laughs> so we ran really fast. So I, I'm not sure whether this is really true or whether we wish it to be so. Mm. We don't have enough experience. Interesting. I mean, now that you say that, I've had that experience with animals also. Um, Perhaps maybe the intuition is different with animals, or maybe, as you said, we're uh, we're wishing something there that we can be so clear about what's alive and what's dead. The second thing 
was like, was very interesting for me to hear you talking about going deep because when I took the class, um, the teacher actually encouraged us to, to focus on what was our interest in. And I really don't care about all the research. Mm -hmm. It's like, duh, okay, stomach, you know, gosh. And so I, I asked whether I could take off the shoulder with the muscles on the front and the back. And so we did that. And for me, going deep was just being with that assembly in 3D mm -hmm. for a half a day. So, you know, yeah, it's just very interesting how, how different it is. There were massage therapists who just stopped at the muscle layer and also had little interest in the, in the viscera um, and could work all day feeling the compartments of the muscles and you know, their chosen medium. Well, that's what I needed to know. You know. Exactly. I, I sneaked the glands every once in a while and they took all the liquid out of, you know. <laughs> but, you know. But it is really a transforming experience. And, uh, I can highly recommend it. Um, in the context of concern about sitting around meditating in graveyards, I was curious, uh, does Buddhism see the reality that there's spirits outside of these bodies at times? Uh, is there such a thing as exorcism in Buddhism? And do people open themselves up with this type of meditation? Um, so you're asking about graveyard. Let me let me first address your question about the the exorcism. Um, the concept of a soul that's separate from the body um, is not something that the Buddha found to be a useful concept, and he was very clear about which questions are leading towards liberation and which ones are not. And speculations about what happens after death or whether I used to be something different in the past or if, you know, that sort of thing, he pointed, tended to point people away from as not leading towards liberation. That's kind of the top-level answer. There are, at the same time, there are um, speculated to be what are called formless beings, in various realms, there's a whole Buddhist cosmology, beings that have bodies, beings that don't have bodies. But it's generally understood that life is a process of some kind, and um, the physical body itself is inanimate elements, and the animation of it is something different. That's a nice way to talk around your question. <laughs> Oh, okay, so um, in the practice of this form of meditation, does the system open up to whatever is out there? What do you mean by the system? 
your energies, your being. I see. Uh, so the the classical graveyard meditation is an attempt to meditate on the state of the body in various stages of decay. So you see the corpse, and then you imagine a corpse with the flesh rotting off of it and so forth, all the way down to bones. The idea being to remove attachment to the body as the self. That's the goal of the meditation. And a person experiencing that meditation might experience it in many ways. Certainly... um, Opening to the whole situation in the way that you're speaking would be one way to approach it, maybe a more modern one, probably not supported by the suttas. Brings up another question. In Buddhism, um, normally people take a vow, some type of vow. Sometimes people take refuge, um, you know, typically in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. That's a little bit different topic. Um, one of saving beings is more like the Bodhisattva vow. And I, th- I think this is a topic that's a little larger than can be addressed um, in a short time. It's with the thought that protection might be in that condition. Protection in case protection is needed, which you know I'm not I'm not set on one idea or another, but those I do have questions like I asked about the safety of open yourself. Certainly the purpose of the refuges, taking the refuges is a protective measure. I've generally heard it to be protection from yourself. <laughs> Probably where we need the most protection. Yeah. Um, I was present at a hot and um, I had a question about life for the man. We lifted the heart out of the body and it can be. Mm-hmm. And it's laid into a box that's going to be sent to somebody who needed it. And it continued to be for quite a long time. And they called it living and we placed it into another body where it continued to live. And so uh, I hope I stopped thinking about what life uh, means because I had a very categorical way of looking at it. It was either or. And, um, now we have places where they lift a body card out and lead into another body and it lives and it lives all the time that it's out of body into the other body. How long it can live without a whole body, I don't know. But um, it was a very, very uh, shocking thing to watch that heart beat without anything around it. Mm-hmm. I'll bet. Thank you. That's that's um, a powerful reminder to think more carefully, more precisely about what life and death are. Linda. Yeah, can, can you say a little bit more about 
what you repeated, the deeper you go into your body, the deeper you go into your mind. Yeah, that, um, that phrase just kept coming up for me as I reflected on the experience. Um, I think it speaks towards the fact that, towards the, the fact that the first foundation of mindfulness can take a person all the way to liberation. So it just goes deeper and deeper. Um, the more, you know, the more we look into any, anything, it continues to reveal all, all of the reality that's there. And since everything is connected to other things, you know, looking at any one thing very deeply starts to lead to all the other connections that we need to see. Um, so in that way, the, the body eventually leads us back to the mind. There's another thing about the mind and memory. Um, and it was when I first had an accident, I, I had to have brain surgery. And after the brain surgery, I started to fall a lot. And um, they told me that they could give me things to help me move and walk. But they preferred that I try to walk on my own because they felt I was teaching the body, not the mind. The, the, in every cell they felt that the memory resided there. And I did. I did learn to stand up and walk initially before this, but um, in a stable way. Hmm. Where the mind is is a good question. That's a wonderful thing to share in terms of muscle memory. And people often find that even if they can't remember what they're doing, their, their hand just goes naturally to something that they need to do. I think we've, many of us have experienced that, and you've experienced it in a profound way from having to come back from this accident. So yes, distributed intelligence, for sure. Well, we are at 9 o'clock. So thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.